With that, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this time that we have with one another. We ask that you would uh, lead us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to understand what's being said in this this passage, that we would see uh, how it relates to our lives, and that ultimately, Lord, uh, that you would draw us closer to yourself. If we don't know you as our Savior, I pray that you would help us to move closer to that place uh, where we could place our faith in Christ and uh, to be redeemed by you. And for those of us who have been saved uh, by grace through faith, we ask that you would just move us into a deeper relationship with you, that we would have a better understanding of that which you have done and provided for us in the cross. We ask that you would help us to understand what grace is and how it applies to our life. Uh, For I don't think that in this life we can fully, fully grasp the magnitude of Jesus' work on the cross for us. And so we ask that you would expand our thinking and grow our hearts and affection for you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Uh, So this passage is a little bit, it's one of these ones that I've uh, been sort of ping-ponging. The ball's been going around in my mind trying to figure out, like, how, how to explain this passage. And... I have my notes, I have a bunch of X's on my notes, kind of like, I think I go this way, like how to enter in. And then as we're singing, I'm like, I, I think that what I need to do is to like back up and give the big picture. And so this is a real pop quiz for me, the kind of, I think for us to understand what happens in today's section, we need to step back. And so then I, I'm thinking, well, how far do I need to step back? And I'm like, just Ephesians. I'm like, okay, well, maybe we need to go a little bit into Acts. And then I'm kind of sensing like, well, why don't we just step all the way back and do a quick overview of the Bible? And I was like, well, this would have been really good to like have like rehearsed a little bit. But sort of like the overarching theme of the Bible. So in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. We all know that. Genesis 1.1. It was good. It was perfect. He created all things. He spoke the, the, the world into existence, I believe, over a literal six days. On the seventh day, he rested, not because he needed any rest, uh, but I think to set sort of the pattern of life uh, for, for humanity. And we don't get too far into Genesis before things go south. Uh, and we see the, the fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3. I do believe that God sort of, uh, in, in order to have true... Uh, a meaningful relationship and love, it means that it has to truly be an option sort of on both sides. And so uh, they were given what, like an instruction of something not to do. They chose to do it and sin entered the world and utterly transformed the world. Not as we know it, we've only known it as distorted. We can only imagine a world where sin didn't exist. And so in Genesis 3, right away when the world was fundamentally changed, I believe, in our, our genetic coding that sin changed who we are. Death uh, became a part of our new reality. And in Genesis chapter three fifteen, a promise was made, a curse was given to, to humanity, a c- curse was given to Satan. And then this promise was given that a Messiah would come and would ultimately restore things, that he would crush Satan. Uh, and this, this prophecy 
of the coming Messiah, this prophecy of the, cr- the cross, even though it's very, very blurry in Genesis, it's there. And then as you work your way throughout the Old Testament, there's these sprinklings of the coming Messiah, that this Messiah would come, that things would be restored, that that a, a sacrifice would be made, that our sins would be atoned for. I think of passages like Isaiah chapter 53, uh, powerful passages, so, so powerful that for years they said there's no way this possibly could be have been written during that time. And then, lo and behold, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered long after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They're able to, 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 to authenticate that the book of Isaiah actually predating Jesus, that Isaiah 53 was there, even though it was not a cha- they didn't have chapter numberings back then. The, the Bible continues to unfold through Malachi. God speaks. God goes silent for 400 years. The people of Israel go through like a lot of questioning. It's known as a silent 400 years. And then all of a sudden, uh, a, a man really of the Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet walks onto the pages of the New Testament. And that's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist begins to foretell that the Messiah, his cousin, six months behind him, it has entered the scene of humanity. And so Jesus is born. He lives his life. He goes throughout his whole early adulthood of 30 years old, not a whole lot is written about him during that time frame. Then at 30 years old, he kicks off his ministry. The ministry goes for about three years. Uh, in his ministry, many, many, many prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. Then he goes to the cross. He's sacrificed on the cross. His followers are very confused by, by what is happening. They don't necessarily understand what is happening in their, in their viewing and their seeing and their touching and their observing everything that's happening. Then three days later, he rises from the dead and Jesus in his resurrected form begins to explain to them the things that are happening, preparing them ultimately, um, the, the beginning of the equipping. And then he ascends into, into the heavens and goes away and they're kind of standing there like, okay, now what? And the angels appear sort of ask some questions like, hey, what are you guys looking at? Like, what are you talking? Like, did this just, and they're like, eh, just wait, you'll get more instruction later. So they wait, something like 50 days. Then Pentecost happens in Acts chapter two. The whole world is there. Uh, those who were following uh, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish traditions, but of, but of all, um, all nationalities, um, Prior to this, prior to Jesus' coming back, and if I told you this is a pop quiz, and I have to think which comes first. So in 7-something B.C., 700 years before Christ, it, the northern part of Israel falls. It's taken into captivity. The people are scattered. Then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls. Israel as a nation would not exist until modern history again, until after World War II. The people of, of, of Israel are totally scattered around the world. They adopt uh, the language and the practices of other nations. And then there was a remnant that remained in Jerusalem and in the nation of Israel. And so on Pentecost, all of these people are in Jerusalem and the Spirit descends upon the people. They're baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is given in a way that has never been given before. The things in the church at this point are distinctly Jewish. Uh, 
Judaism and Christianity were not distinct like they are today. They, they were viewed as one sort of, um, but a very, like a sect within Judaism. And this would continue until AD 70 when Nero destroyed Jerusalem and he would tear down the temple walls. Uh, the, the Christians were blamed for this and, and the line between Christians and Jews were sort of, it was, became very distinct that this Christianity was its own thing. Judaism was its own thing. But so as Acts sort of unravels, the apostles, I don't even know the chapters. I would have written it down if I knew I was going to be giving this background. Um, they, they were in Jerusalem and Peter was the leader and Peter was led by God to reach the Jewish people with the gospel that Jesus was their Messiah. And so they were living Judaism. They were living as they always lived, but their Messiah had come. Their Messiah had uh, died for their sins. They had a new relationship with God. This message spread through Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was saturated to the point that they were sick of these, these converts who were following the Messiah. And persecution broke out and pushed them out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, sort of like modern-day Israel as we know. And as it went out, eventually the gospel made it to those who were outside of the Jewish faith, and it made it to Gentiles. And I believe this is like in, in Acts something or other, maybe around eight or eight or so, seven, eight. But there's a, a guy, Cornelius, who was a, a Gentile soldier up, up in Caesarea, uh, in Caesarea on the coast, he comes to faith, and now the gospel has made it to those who are outside of the Jewish teaching. And so now you have these people who have no Jewish background, sort of living and operating within Christianity, and, and the Jews are like, well, how do these people like fit in with us? And and there was still persecution is, is like widespread. Amongst the persecutors, there was a lead guy by the name of Saul, formerly well, the rappers. For those of you who've been around church, we have a little rapping crew, and there's a song that's like really dominant around, you know, uh, Paul, formerly known as Saul, and I forget the rest, and I don't need to start rapping because I'm not on the crew. Um, but summer nights, they'll probably be making their appearance. And so Saul is this Jew of Jews. Pedigreed, I mean, of the tribe of Benjamin, studied under Gamaliel, like you name it, he had the credentials. He was persecuting the, the church, likely was a guy in authority when the very first believer, Stephen, was stoned for his faith and he was killed. If you're doing the Bible reading plan, we just read this like yesterday, I think. And so this guy's killed. We're told that they'd laid the coats at Paul's or Saul's feet at the time. So Paul's this ringleader persecuting the early church. He hated what this church was saying about the Messiah. They were in violation of the Jewish teaching. And so as he's on this rampage collecting the individuals who had converted to Christianity from Judaism, he was, he was getting them, bringing them back for prosecution. And so he's on his way to the road to Damascus, which is like modern-day Samaria, on that road, this man encounters the risen Christ. He goes blind. His whole world is utterly transformed. 
God says, I want you to go to this, this place. While you're still blind and you're going to meet this individual, he's going to talk to you. He ultimately regains his sight, and it's Barnabas who takes now the guy who we know is Saul. He, his name becomes Paul, he, or historically he's known as Paul, and he introduces him to the church. The church is like, time out. We know this guy. Like, this guy kills us. Like, this guy puts us under arrest, and this is just a ploy. He hasn't converted. This is just his way to sort of figure out who we are. Barnabas says, no, 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 I can vouch for this guy. And then in Acts, Paul sort of takes center stage because you reach a certain point in Acts and the story follows the movement of the gospel to the Jewish people. And then it shifts to the, of the movement of the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul is the guy who God used to reach the Gentiles. And so the book of Acts continues to unfold. It's a historical document the, the, like telling us about the early church. And so these Gentiles are receiving the gospel in, in, in large numbers. And they have a real problem on their hands because the Jews have all sorts of traditions. A big one was circumcision, which we, if you, parent, you can talk to your parents about that later. Um, it's in the Bible. So, but apparently everybody knew if you were circumcised or not circumcised in that day. I don't know how that happened, but that's a, one, of these, one of these questions that I'll get to in heaven that probably won't matter when I get to heaven. And... And so these Gentiles were not circumcised. Circumcision was a sign from God to the Jewish people, setting them apart from all of the other peoples. And now Paul is reaching the Gentiles. The gospel continued to spread. So if you in your mind can imagine Jerusalem, if I was prepared for this, I would have had a slideshow up here. Uh, the gospel moves north up to Antioch, continues up around to modern-day Turkey, and there's a couple laps uh, through mo- what we know as modern-day Turkey, but they change their name. It's like Turkeya or something different. The Turkeys change their name. Uh, and so in this region, there's a whole bunch of, of locations where Gentiles became Christians, and then the, the Christians formed churches. And in these locations came a bunch of books of the Bible. So like we're in Ephesians, that's Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Philemon's is Philippi. Uh, Colossians is Colossae. So all of these books are over cities that are like all sprinkled out through Turkey. And so all of these people are coming to faith. Now, as Paul's going through reaching these people for faith, he has a problem. You have these Jewish followers who are not necessarily believers, but there could have been a little co-mingling, the Judaizers. So they stood firm for Judaism. They, they weren't necessarily uh for Jesus as the Messiah, but there were also Jewish believers who did believe in Jesus, but these Judaizers had big influence in their thinking. Um, and so they would sort of follow Paul in his wake, and after Paul left, they would come in and they'd say, well, well, welcome to the family of God. We're glad that you're here, but if you really want to be saved, what we need to do is uh, get you circumcised, and I have a scalpel in my back pocket, so let's go to town, and you start living according to the way we do this. Paul, as this is happening, is getting furious. He's getting furious because what they're doing is they're infringing upon grace. And so it comes to a head. The leader of the Jewish uh, outreach was the Apostle Peter. And then you have Paul who was sort of grafted in from the outside. That's probably, he wasn't with the apostles during the earthly ministry. And so they're at sort of odds. And Paul, in one of his letters, 
says, like, I publicly confronted Peter. Peter, when he's around Gentiles, is all hunky-dory, like everything's cool. But then when he's around Jewish people, he stops, like, eating non-kosher foods. Or, yeah, stops eating non-kosher food. So he wouldn't, when he's around the Gentiles, he's cool with bacon. When he's with the Jews, oh, I'd never touch that stuff. Like, that's, that's kind of what was happening. And so Paul confronts Peter in this way, and it sort of comes to a head in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, Paul and the apostles and sort of their two factions are sort of having it out about grace. How does grace fit when we have these two cultures coming together? And so they are, I mean, I get the feeling that this was just a a, a drag out, huge sort of like screaming argument. Like, I'm not English, but when I've watched movies about how English government works, the guys with the wigs that are all yelling and screaming and going back and forth, that's the scene I have in my mind. And so they're, they're going at it. And at the end of the day, they recognize Paul is right. However, there are three things that they asked Paul to communicate to the Gentiles in order to be sensitive to their Jewish brothers in Christ who still maintain sort of the the Jewish flair. Um, It was very difficult if you are raised uh, your whole life to live according to kosher laws to suddenly say, it's okay to eat bacon. That would be like us, you know, at our dinner eights at the end for dessert, I brought out a bag full of deep fried crickets and other various bugs. And, you know, half of the people like shot down my offers. Very rude of like a host. And, but like, why is it hard for us to eat crickets? Because we don't eat crickets in our culture. But if you go to like Asia, they eat crickets all the time. Like it's no big deal. And so it's like one of these things that like suddenly, you're asking us to do things. And so they come up with their little list of three things, of things that they shouldn't do and that Paul agreed to that, that they wouldn't do out of respect, out of courtesy to the Jewish believers. And so Paul's very excited. They write up this letter. Paul goes back to all the people he knows. He's breaking the good news. The good news for the Gentiles is you don't have to be circumcised. You can be a Christian and not be circumcised because uh, that was quite the commitment for a male at that time, at that age, to, to do that. And... uh and, and so then Acts continues to unfold. And you get to Acts, I think it's 21, verse 28. This is where we're getting really close to my notes now. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, we're 20 minutes in, and I'm almost getting to where I think I'm supposed to go. Um, you get to Acts 21. Paul is now in the temple. And this, out, this, this almost like a riot breaks out. And the Jewish people are, are hor- like horrified because in the temple, there was a dividing wall, Gentiles up to a certain point. And then when you cross that certain point, no Gentiles, only Jewish people. And so there was an outcry. And this outcry in, in Acts chapter 21, verse 28, it says, and besides, he, that's Paul, has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And so this leads to Paul going on the run. Uh, Out out of safety, he goes to Caesarea, to the coast. Uh, Ultimately, while he's there, those who are in in authority, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. They hear about this outbreak. They hear that these guys are approaching. They want to get Paul. They want to execute Paul. 
And so they're trying to figure out what do we do with this situation. And in the midst of it, as they're trying to hammer out the details, what Paul does as a Roman citizen, what he had the right to do was to appeal to Caesar. And he said, I declare that I want to see Caesar. And they said, okay. So then he was arrested there uh, for like two years before they got him to Rome. And he's under arrest waiting his, his fate. And while he's there, he writes four letters in the, New, in the New Testament. One of them is Ephesians, prison epistle. And as we're going through the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is writing these great theological truths. And last week, we're getting to sort of the heart of the matter. And I'm going to read last week's passage again to ease in <clears throat> to, to our passage today. So last week we started in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the quote-unquote uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our, our peace, who made both groups, Gentiles and Jews, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall this could be between the two people groups, or it could be also, or and or, that literal wall in the temple between the two, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, skipping down to verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Okay. That's our introduction. He gives this huge theological component that as Gentiles who have received Christ as your Savior, you are no longer second-class citizens. You are, you are not distinct, substandard in any shape or form to the Jewish people who are within the church. We are equal. In Christ, we are one. All people, regardless of your social uh, economic background, your legal background, 
your whatever it is in your past, at the cross, the field is leveled. And once you enter through God's grace by faith, we are all one in Christ. There is no distinction. That's the huge theological point. And at this point, Paul wants to go into prayer, which we're going to get to next week. But, in, but as Paul does, he has to unpack some more. And he's going to unpack today this sort of this mystery. And the mystery in layman's terms isn't something like that's like a Rubik's cube that you got to find out or like you got to have a Ouija board to kind of like there's some mystery out there. It's just simply there was something that hadn't been revealed before that we didn't quite know about that has now been made known to us through God. And that mystery is sort of that in ages past, all along God's plan from the very beginning, all humanity has been affected by sin. And God's plan was always to reach all people. Now, the Jewish people became a little self-centered and inward-focused. And, 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 and in a lot of ways, I thank God for the stubbornness of the Jewish people because without the stubbornness of the Jewish people, I don't know that we would have found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, I don't think we would have had... Like, those were people that were living out in the middle of the desert saying, we don't want to be a part of this world. We're going to just be in our little huddle. We're going to preserve the text and thank God for them because years later we have that authentication. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for them to be a light unto the world, to bring all nations to them. It was always God's plan. And so he's saying this, this was a mystery that we missed it. Paul was one of them. Paul was this guy who didn't see it. What I didn't cover in my broad overview is that that day when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, there's a little bit of mystery. We don't exactly know the timeline, but we know that right after that moment, somewhere in there, Paul goes off the scene for like 14 years. I think the adult Sunday school class is starting Genesis today. You guys might have covered this, but it's like they, Paul exits the stage. He's like, I have to reexamine everything I know about the Bible. And Paul knew the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. It would have been memorized. He would have known it word for word, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, there was a spoken culture. And so he goes down to the desert and he reexamines everything that he knows through the Bible. And he's like, this absolutely is the truth that, that Jesus all along was there and I missed it. And then his whole life was explaining the Messiah to the Gentiles. It's his beautiful plan. So now he has this mystery. And in chapter four, verse one, from all of the doctrine that he's given, he's going to launch into practical ap- application in their life. Because of all this truth I've given you, this is how you need to live your life. And he's at this very last introduction. So, ch- uh, chapter three, verse one. I know we're going to get we're going to get into this passage. We're here. Um, so, for this reason, I Paul, and I think when he says his name, he recognizes he's in a jail cell. He's under arrest because of his mission to the Gentile people. And so he pauses, and he's going to get back to this for this reason. He bends his knee or bows his knee before the Father in in verse 14. But now he's going to begin to sort of unpack. I, Paul, the prisoner in a very literal sense of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ. I sit in this jail cell in Rome because of you Gentiles. That's kind of like, oh man, Paul's under arrest because of me. And why was he under arrest because of them? Because 
he was proclaiming this gospel, this mystery that the Gentiles had full access to God, distinct from the way the Jews did it, the, the Mosaic law. For the Gentiles, like the Mosaic law was never given to us to, to be under, to follow. And this was radical. And the, the Jewish non-believers had heartburn over this. And so they went after Paul. He was arrested. Uh, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Back in verse 13, I just read it. But now in Christ, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is wonderful news for the Gentile believers. The Jewish non-believers didn't like this. So Paul was arrested. Ultimately, he would give his life uh, fulfilling what God had laid at his feet. Uh, Paul was all in. He wasn't complaining to them that he was under arrest because of them. He's like, this is the path that God has put me on. I had no other option but to follow it. When I hear people talk about like, oh, God called me into the ministry when I was six years old, or I was called into this, and this is the the big plan. It's like, I'm always really doubtful in the beginning. Um, But it's like those who God has like called into service I think you know that you've been called into something when you can't quit in the midst of the fire, when it would be easier to walk away than to remain. And so here Paul can't walk away because he's been called, uh, conscripted into service. He goes on to say in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So this, if indeed, Ephesians was a circular letter. Paul spent three years in the town of Ephesus. He had what would be the equivalent of sort of a Bible college by today's understanding. He trained and equipped these future leaders and he would send them out. He was there for a long time. Now when he's in jail, he pens Ephesians. He sends it to them. And the intent of Ephesians was to circulate to all of the churches. And so they would receive We don't have the original letter, and it's beautiful, but I don't have time to go on that tangent. But what would happen is they would receive the letter, a scribe would then copy the letter, and then they would send the original on. And then from that copy, other scribes would make additional copies, like hundreds of them, and then the letter would go out. And so today, when you're reading your Bibles and you see a footnote, and it says, ah, some have this, some don't. The beauty of this is like, you cannot distort the New Testament because there's thousands of these manuscripts and they say, oh, it says the here, but there was no the in this one manuscript. And they tell you where all these manuscripts are. It's fascinating. And so this letter is going all around. And so Paul recognizes that all of these people who are Gentiles are reading this letter. Some are believers, some are not. And so what he says here, if you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, so if you're reading this and you haven't heard about the gospel, that Jesus died for you, he loves you, he made the perfect sacrifice so that you could enter into this relationship with God through grace alone, by faith. If you haven't, then I'm not here in jail for you. I'm for those who have given their lives to Christ. And because they've given their lives to Christ and they're a part of like the Jewish family now, that's why I'm in prison. So if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, his calling, that by revelation there was made known the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So back in Ephesians 1.9, he mentions mystery. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12, he mentions mystery. And now today, 
he is going to unpack this mystery. And, and he says, uh, this stewardship of God's grace. And this idea of God's grace is unfathomable to those who live and operate by a system of works before God. Paul was one of them. But God captured his heart and utterly transformed him through grace. And then God commissioned him to reach these people who he couldn't stand. Verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been made now, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And so previously it was undisclosed. Now through the, through the unfolding of God's plan through the apostles and prophets in Jesus' life, the things that they were unclear about or didn't know about have been now made clear and are known. Uh, Stott says this about the mystery. We need to realize that the English and Greek words do not have the same meaning. In English, a mystery is something dark, obscure, secret, puzzling. What is mysterious is inexplicable, even incomprehensible. The Greek word mysterion is different, however, although still a secret, uh, it is no longer closely guarded, but open. The Christian mysteries are truth, which, although beyond human discovery have been revealed by God and so now belong openly to the whole church. So this thing which was not really understood has now been made known. It's clear, it's spreading. It's sort of this, the the driving mission of the church was to let everybody know that the, the, the Messiah is for all. And then he says this phrase that I love, you can understand. Um, my, my assumption from the Bible is that we who are believers in the world, we are to be opening the Bible, reading it, studying it. We are not a faith tradition that says the, the word of God is withheld from you. You need to see a pastor for him to give you the right interpretation. You don't have the capacity to know. No, 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 no. You, you all, through the spirit of God, can read and you can understand. Like, my, my role here is to teach and to equip you and to help you understand what the Bible's being said. It's like the, the passion that God has given me. Um, is Patty not here? Perfect. I can talk about Patty. <laughs> I was going to anyhow. Patty, like, she, just even last week, she said this to me. But like, uh, probably like, I don't know, like a year ago, Patty comes up to me and she's like, I need to tell you something. And I'm like, Okay. She's like, I haven't figured out how to articulate this in an, in an unoffensive way. <laughs> so she's like, I don't want you to take it the wrong way. So this is always how to put somebody at ease. Like, I'm like, okay. So I'm preparing my face not to have a reaction, just to like, and she's like, you're the stupid whisperer. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, like the dog whisperer, like he can speak their language. You have a whole congregation. We're all really stupid. And you speak our language. And you, and I'm like, that's the nicest thing anybody has said to me because I'm stupid too. And so I have a heart for stupid people. And so I want to like, to like, this is why I have the super long introduction today because I'm like, how do I make this understandable? 
So I've taken the title, I'm the Stupid Whisperer, and I'm so thankful for this compliment. And it's important because the Word of God, it can be understood. And God wants you to understand it. And wherever you go to church, you should be under a Bible teacher that helps make it understandable to you. It's for us. That's why we go through a book of the Bible at a time. By going through books of the Bible, subconsciously, you're learning how you handle the Bible. By listening to a teacher that goes word by word, line by line, verse by verse, you're learning how to handle the scripture in context. You're learning the history. You're learning the background. We encourage you to be involved in Bible studies. We encourage you to be in Bible reading plans, to be taking in the word of God so that it goes into you because the word is for you and you should be consuming it. And in verse 6, I got to speed up here, to be specific, that the Gentiles are, this gives me goosebumps because most of us, for all I know, the vast majority of us are Gentiles. I know of one Jew in the audience who follows the Messiah and I know one who's married to a Jew. <laughs> so, so, but for the rest of us, we're, we are Gentiles. And this like super duper applies to us. To be specific that the Gentiles, you, fellow heirs, that this is like my dad passed away two months ago. I'm the, the trustee settling the estate. My dad has an adopted son. And, and part of this very much is legally he is entitled to everything as if he was naturally born to my father. Gives me the goosebumps, especially in this time of my life. This isn't like, oh, you're a second-class citizen. You're not entitled. to No, 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 no. The law makes it very clear. And by my dad's instructions in his last will and testament and trust and everything, like, that this son who I adopt on this day is and shall be treated as though he is my biological son. And as a trustee who doesn't know this this guy like very well, like I know him, like it's that's a more we don't need to go into my past. I'll do we'll do counseling. <laughs> um, not that I'm opposed to going into my past, like I'm an open book. It's just more for the time's sake. I, um, but it's like my role is like no, no. He's like a brother. I treat him with the utmost respect. I give him every single information that he needs because he is a full heir. Just like this is saying that we who are Gentiles. We are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Every group, every whatever your background is, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, we are one. It's beautiful. Of which I was made a minister. This was Paul's call, and I love that it was he was made a minister. This isn't like yeah, I thought it would be a good idea to go be an apostle. Like, I thought that, like, I was like, you know, as I was looking at careers, I thought this would be, so I figured out, like, what, what school do I have to go to? What this, like, no, he was, he was doing his own thing. God reached down and said, uh-uh, you're mine. And I don't know what your plans are for next week, but they've been changed. And for the rest of your life. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And I love this made a minister. It's like when people ask, like, how did you go from being a seal to pastor? I'm like, well, I kind of, I was there. And then it was like, I I got kind of ripped out of there and I was put on this path and I didn't like choose this path. I just kind of like, I thought I'd take a Bible class because I wanted to learn more of the Bible. And I took another Bible class and then I got kind of a couple years into it. And it's like, what is, wait, wait, what's happening here? And then I was a pastor. And it was like, 
the first church that I went to that had a building was a church I was a pastor of. So it's kind of like, oh, this is like weird. But this idea that those who are called are like pulled in, and Paul was like pulled into this. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And I love this because God's grace is not just for salvation. God's grace is for our living. It's our God's grace is for serving him. All aspects of our life should be rooted in grace. Everything that you do, how you, we interact with one another, when we go do something for whatever, if we're serving the Lord in whatever capacity, we're doing it under grace. Then he goes on to talk about himself to me. The very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. <clears throat> if you track Paul's, he's got three of these sayings. He goes here that of, of uh, that, no, well, I like to back it up. In Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, of all of the apostles, he's the very least. Um, then here, he says, of all of the Christians, he's the very least. So first, if you take the category of all the apostles, Paul's at the very bottom. Then he says, well, of all believers, I'm at the very bottom. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, like towards the end of his life, as he's getting along, he says, of all of the sinners, I was the very worst. <laughs> it's like, what's going on, Paul? And I don't think it's getting, that he's getting worse. I think what is happening is he's getting a greater understanding of who God is and what God's holiness is. And as he looks into the light of God's purity, it shines on who he is. And he's not like, he's recognizing that this calling that he has is a great privilege. What a responsibility and gift that Paul was given to be this man who would be used to sort of establish God's plan with the church. And I think that's what's saying here. Verse 9, he says, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that purpose clause here, all of these things were hidden. Now the mystery revealed so that for this purpose, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So the church has this huge responsibility. Like we at Grace Point Church, it's not just about us. We've been brought into that we're part of something bigger and every local church that follows the Bible, we are part of something that's far bigger than ourselves. That the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we exist not for ourselves. We exist as, as soldiers for God, as ministers who have been called to reveal to the world this mystery of the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and that through faith in Christ, you simply receive the grace of God and you're transformed from a sinner into a saved sinner. It's beautiful. This is the great plan. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness, and confident access through faith in him. This eternal plan was always in motion. This isn't like a, ah, things kind of went south with Jesus and his earthly ministry, so now we're going to come up with this plan. This was, this was always the plan in God's will. And he carried it out in Christ 
and we have access to the Father through him. We have this intimacy. And then in verse 13, Paul gets to sort of his closing statement as he's sitting in his prison cell, writing to these these people, the Gentiles whom he loves, whether they are saved or unsaved, he has a love for them because these are the people whom God has called him to go. These are people, if they're out of Christ or in Christ, they are people for whom Christ died. And Paul was given the responsibility to go and to share the news with them. And what they did with it was on them. But now there are many of them who've responded. There are many of them who love the Apostle Paul, and they see that he's in jail. And he's likely, and he will be, crucified. I think, I think it was Paul that was crucified upside down, but whatever. He was, his life would be taken because of this ministry. And so now his heart kind of breaks for them because they're sad for his situation. And I think in this last verse, what God is saying, or not, what, what God is saying through Paul, is he wants us to understand that everything that flows through your world and touches you, none of it misses going through the hand of God. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything that you're going through right now is flowing through the fingertips of God. And if it's a hard thing, I can't necessarily tell you why you're going through that hard thing, but I can tell you that God is sovereign and he's allowing it. And you might not see in in this moment or this year or the next five years or the decade, or maybe not even in your life. Like I think about Joe Wagnell, one of the missionaries that we supported in Africa, that he tells a story about his grandfather who served amongst his tribe. He went his whole life, never saw anything. Then he died. And then the whole tribe comes to Christ after his death. And so Joe's just like shared with us weeping that my grandfather never saw. He thought he was a failure his whole life, only to learn that the next generation of that family would see how his grandfather had an impact on it. Like, so you might be going through something that you'll never understand why. And Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations. And he had plenty. But he had my tribulations, I don't want to cut off too soon, tribulations on your behalf. Like I'm in here under arrest because of you. As far as the world around me, I bear sole responsibility for your conversion to Christ. And I'm in prison because of you. But I don't want you to lose heart because God's plan is bigger. These sufferings that I'm going for are for your glory. So just don't lose heart. I think when we're going through good times, when we're going through bad times, it's important to recognize that God has a plan and he's bigger than whatever you're going through. And even if you don't understand, if you don't like it, if you're not happy with how it's going, as you mature in your relationship with God, you begin to see it's like, so be it. My God is greater than whatever problem I'm going through. And my God will will be sufficient to guide me through this, regardless how it ends. This is the early church. Whether you take my life or not, I think of Daniel, like if, if you kill me or I live, regardless, I'm going to praise God. And so what do we do? Like, what do we do with this passage? And everything else I said not related to this passage. Um, like, I am super convicted and I've learned from Paul's example that he's absolutely all in. He recognized what God wants of him and he was was living it out in his life regardless of the consequences that he would face. And so I truly want to pray in my life, God, like here I am, use me. 
Like whatever it is that you want from me, I want to do it. And I recognize that that's an easy prayer to pray. It's a harder prayer to actually live out. And I think that we pray sometimes these things and we won't know until we're actually in those moments of like, this is going to be really hard, God, if I do this. I know, but I need you to do it for your sake. Um, I've also been very convicted by Paul's love for people. Paul is sitting in a, a jail cell. He's literally given his life and his life will be taken for pursuing this message of the gospel to a world that apart from Christ would find themselves in an eternity uh, suffering the consequences of their sin. And Paul loved them to the end regardless. And it just begs the question, like, how do we love our neighbors? How do we love our coworkers? How do we love the ones who are not like us, who don't think like us, who are in opposition to us. When I look at this, it like begs me to pray, Lord, like help me to love like you want me to love because I'm not capable of doing this on my own. And then finally from this, like the great role of the church in this passage, Ephesians 3.10, that as a church, we have this responsibility to the world or we have this responsibility to God to, to be a light unto the world. And so I recognize, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which we'll get to, my, my role is to equip the saints, y'all. And I believe that the equipping happens through the teaching of the word. As the word of God goes into your hearts, the spirit of God grabs it and then begins to lead and guide you. Uh, that, that's why when somebody says, I really feel like I'm supposed to do this or this is supposed to happen, I'm like, well, that's great. Let's run with it. When do you, you want to go with it? You know, like, I'm not, I don't, that's not what God's calling me to do, but if he's calling you to do that, then I, my job is to help you do that. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this great story that is unfolding before our eyes, looking at the story of Paul's life, really through the, the story of redemption throughout the Bible. Father, we pray, Lord, for each person that's here, um, for those who are still sort of auditing Christianity, exploring Christianity, I pray, Father, that you would, deep within their heart, that you would show them their great sin and show them their sin in light of your holiness and show them their need for you and a Savior. I pray, Father, that you would help them to understand the gift of, of grace clearly, that they would be able to respond by faith. And for those of us, Lord, who have responded to you by faith, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to surrender ourselves to you, we recognize that Jesus gave all for us and we don't necessarily give all to you and I confess that. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to give more of ourselves to you, that we would be more open to your leading, that we would be faithful in the small things so that when the big things present themselves, we would be ready. And so, Lord, we we just ask that you would place your love in our hearts and that we would be burdened for those that we know and love and care about who don't know you as Savior. Uh, They're tough nuts to crack, and they can be harsh, and they can be intimidating, and it can be super fearful. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to love and to be gentle and to be kind as you are um, to us so that ultimately one day we may see transformation in these people's lives, Lord. 
Um, I've seen it happen in my own life, and I'm confident that you can do it in others. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.